like Bernadette said, my name is Stephen. I'm one of the pastors here. And I'm going to be continuing in our series from Isaiah. So if you have a Bible, that's where you want to open up to. Isaiah 43 and 44. We're going to speed read through the whole two chapters now. Uh, but we are going to be continuing in that. As always, we have Bibles here on the sides and in the back. I kind of like this motion because it's very stewardess-ish. So, you know, I enjoy that every once in a while. Uh, but, I've, you know, I've mentioned in the past that my favorite sport's baseball. So I have to tie it in somewhere within my sermon, right? I know I'm in the minority on baseball, but hey, you know, humor me. My, probably my favorite baseball movie is Field of Dreams. Anybody seen it? It's about as iconic as you can get for a baseball movie. And there's this really interesting thing that happens. You know, you have Kevin Costner, James Earl Jones, Darth Vader, and Robin Hood go on a road trip. Done. Sign me up. I'm on that one. Like, I'm in. And so Kevin Costner's standing outside of his cornfield in the middle of Iowa or something like that. And all of a sudden, a disembodied voice speaks to him from the corn. It's where you thought a baseball movie was going to go, right? And he tells him, if you build it, they will come. Fantastic advice. The building it refers to tearing down his whole cornfield and putting a baseball field in. And they refers to a bunch of ghosts from baseball past walking through his cornfield and beginning to play a baseball game. Sounds like an exciting premise for a movie, right? If you build it, they will come. Well, what's interesting is that in the decades since this movie came out, this has become, for some reason, amazing business advice. I don't know if you realize this, but there's lots of people that, get, that make other people pay them to tell them this. If you build it, they will come. If you listen to words from a disembodied voice, all of a sudden your business will take off and grow in huge, amazing ways. All it takes is you to get a store online or physical store, put whatever you're offering or selling, services or goods, open the doors, and voila. All of a sudden, people just walk in. It's just that easy. If you build it, they will come. That's all it takes. And you know what's funny? Is Sarah and I, my wife and I, we were church planning before we came here. And you know, there's church planning advice that tells you to do this. All it takes is just a building, some space somewhere, and somebody who can preach halfway decently, somebody who can play a guitar or a piano, hopefully your spouse or you, because you can't afford to pay anybody else to do it. You open up the door on Sunday morning and all of a sudden, boom, people are there. That's all it takes. Just those three simple steps. Now, obviously there's some sarcasm built in that because I can tell you from firsthand experience, that is not all that it takes. Uh, it takes a little bit more than that. And you know, what's interesting, even though we've tried to take this disembodied voice to be God, I guess, telling us what to do at times, uh, what's interesting is that God doesn't seem to like to work in kind of a prescribed manner. He doesn't do the same thing twice very often. He likes to do a lot of unique things. He likes to do a lot of different things in how he moves. If you look at the moves of God throughout history, times where revival's broken out, where lots of people have come to know Jesus, where he's really revealed himself to large groups of people, what, it's like the, the similarities are pretty small. You know what the similarity is? They're all different. 
It's all different types of people in different places in different ways. Here's a few examples of it. You know, in the 1700s, not far from here, in a town called Northampton, Northampton, how do I say that, Massachusetts? There you go. You all heard it. I, I can't repeat that. In a town with that name, Jonathan Edwards was pastoring a little church and revival broke out in New England. And you know how it started? He got up on a Sunday morning and he started preaching on justification by faith alone. And all of a sudden, the church filled up with young people who were really excited to hear that. I guess that's what we're starting next week, guys. <laughs> Justification through faith alone. Get excited. It's good stuff right there. That's all it took. He started preaching on that, and all of a sudden, revival broke out throughout New England. Pretty crazy. How about this? The Azusa Street Revival. In 1904, in Azusa Street, Los Angeles, there's this little building kind of a junkie building, if we're going to be honest, that one of the newspapers referred to it as a tumble-down shack, not a compliment. And in this little building, a church met, and a guy named William Seymour came one Sunday to preach. And he started preaching on the Holy Spirit and on the Holy Spirit's power. And all of a sudden, God broke out and started doing amazing things. And it spread across the country, across the world. And out of that tumble-down shack came these movements of which today some 500 million people consider themselves to be a part of the Pentecostal and Charismatic movements, which we're a part of. Out of a tumble-down shack that they were paying $8 a month to rent. Who would have thought? We need a cheaper building. You're excited about that one. Uh, in 1908, last one, in 1908, in an area of China that was then referred to as Manchuria, you might know it more for a Tom Cruise movie, I think, Denzel Washington, one of those two, I think, this missionary couple arrived from Canada, and their names were kind of amazingly go forth, which is like <laughs> the best missionary name of all time. Like, they're born and like, well, I know what you're going to do, you know? Like, okay, that's, that's cool. That's easy. So this couple arrives from Canada. Very sweet, nice couple. And all of a sudden, this revival breaks out. And so uh, one of, somebody was interviewing Jonathan Goforth. And they asked him, you know, what'd you do? How'd you make this all happen? And here's what he said. He said, I had no method. I did not know how to conduct a revival. I could deliver an address and let people pray, but that was all. That is the most underwhelming statement of what a evangelist or pastor has ever done. It's awesome. I could deliver an address. I could talk for about two minutes about Jesus, and then I was done, and then it was up to them to pray on their own. And yet, out of that, the number of Christians in China doubled. It increased in a couple of years by 125,000. And that was happening during the time that the Boxer Uprising and the 1911 Revolution were happening. So it wasn't like it was an easy time to become a Christian. There was tremendous persecution going on. And yet out of these very simple, down-to-earth folks, God did something crazy in China and revealed himself. You know, if we're looking for similarities, the similarities are found in how different they are. And in how much God loves to use surprising things 
to do his work. Surprising people in surprising places. These stories of revival breaking out of God, really revealing himself in new ways, show us that. And here's what we learn. God loves to work in new ways. He loves it. He loves to be unique. We do not worship a cookie cutter God. We worship a God who majors in the unique. You know, I think it means that the old pickup line is pretty true. Uh, God broke the mold when he made you. I think that's just a pretty, pretty accurate uh, assumption that we can go on. You can throw up the next slide there, Blake. There you go. Good job, God. It's a factual statement. And what we see in this part of Isaiah is exactly this. In Isaiah 43 and 44, throughout this section of the book of Isaiah, we're reminded over and over and over again of God's promises. God keeps telling the Israelites that he's going to do something. And the Israelites keep asking him, okay, what are you going to do? Are you actually going to do it? And so this morning, that's what I want us to kind of echo back along with people all throughout the past several thousand years. What's God up to? And God, what are you wanting to do? Are you going to do it? We're going to hold you to it this morning, to the promises that you've given us. So will you pray with me as we begin? Just invite the Holy Spirit to come. Jesus, we just say you're welcome here. Just come and reign here in this place. We thank you for your presence. It's already here. We thank you for the way that you're already moving in our hearts, for the things that you did in us before we even walked in the doors. And, and I just ask this morning, Holy Spirit, that you will do something new, that you will pour yourself out on us, that you will reveal yourself to us in new ways, in unexpected and surprisingly unique ways. We want more of you. We want what it is that you're promising to us. So come, Holy Spirit. We welcome you in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you have your Bible, open up to Isaiah 43, and let's read verses 10 through 13 as we start off. Here's what it says. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed nor will there be one after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and apart from me there is no Savior. I have revealed, saved, and proclaimed, I and not some foreign God among you. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, that I am God. Yes, and from the ancient days I am He. No one can deliver out of my hands. When I act, who can reverse it? Some good stuff in there. God's telling us who he is and what he's up to in our midst, what, what he's wanting to do. Twice we're given these three sets of actions. He first tells us what we have to do, and then he tells us why we're doing it because of what he's already done. He says that he will reveal, save, and proclaim. And he says, because of that, you're going to know, believe, and understand. 
And this statement is made kind of over and over throughout this section of Isaiah. This statement of God telling us that he's going to reveal himself to us so that we can know who he is. It's in Isaiah 41, 43, twice, 46, 48, and 51. Over and over and over again, God's saying, I am he. He's saying, I'm the one. He's showing us who his identity is, that he's the one who has made all, the one who we're looking for, the one who saves us, the one to whom all will return, that he's the unique one. And he's repeating over and over and over again that he wants us to know that so that we can do those three things, so we can know, so that we can believe, and so that we can understand. And as he tells us this, he follows it up by saying, I'm doing all of this so that you'll be my witnesses, so that something will happen in you that will cause you to to want to share it, to want to to tell others about it, because there's something that you've, you've been impacted by, that we're chosen to know, to believe, and to understand this reality. But what are we witnesses of? You know, it's really important if you're a witness in a case to know what you're a witness of, right? That's, that's a pretty good thing. I came across a couple of real uh, lawyer and witness interactions and cases uh, for you. Once a lawyer asked a witness if she could describe an individual. She said that he was about medium height with a beard. I realize that that does nail me right now, but it's not about me. Uh, and then the lawyer asked, was it a male or a female? There was another time that a lawyer asked a witness to describe what happened, and he said... Uh, that he told me, I have to kill you because you can identify me. Then the lawyer said, did he kill you? The witness said, no. It's important that you know what it is that you're a witness of, right? It's important that you're, you're saying what it is that, that's happened to you, what it is that's affected you in that way. Otherwise, your, your witness is just kind of pointless. It, it's, it's unnecessary. It's repetitive, right? So what are we witnesses of? Look at verse 16 with me in Isaiah 43. It says, This is what the Lord says, He who made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters, who drew out the chariots and horses, the army and the reinforcements together. They lay there never to rise again, extinguished, snuffed out like a wick. Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland to give drink to my people, my chosen, the people that I have formed for myself, that they may proclaim my praise. It's a good section there. What's interesting is that God kind of tells us to do something and then not to do it. Did you catch that? He reminds us of what he's done. And then he says, forget it. It's gone. Stop dwelling on it. Look at what's coming ahead. Remember, but not. Remember, but not is what he's telling us to do. And I think that there's something that he's up to in this. I think that God is saying to them, he's saying, remember that I'm the God who brought you out of Egypt. I'm the God who opened the Red Sea so that you could walk all the way across it. I'm the God who then closed it up over the Egyptians when they were coming after you, trying to bring you back to slavery. Remember that I'm the God who gave you bread and who gave you meat in the middle of the desert. I'm the God who told 
uh, Moses exactly which rock to hit so that water would come out when you were thirsty in the desert. That I'm the God who took 300 men armed with nothing but trumpets and their own vocal cords and took out an army of thousands. I'm the God who gave courage to a teenage boy to take up a sling and a, sl- and a stone to slay a giant and give victory over your oppressors. Remember that I am that God, but stop requiring me to act in that exact same way. Remember who I am, but stop requiring me to do that over and over again. And I think he continues on. I think he says, remember that I'm the God who fed 20,000 people with two loaves of bread and a couple of fish. I'm the God who raised Lazarus from the dead. I'm the God who healed the blind, the deaf, the lame, and the sick. I'm the God who came among you, who lived died and rose again for you. I'm the God who sent the Holy Spirit on 120 people in a cramped, probably smelly room. And then after that, sent them into the street so that 3,000 people could come to know me in that one afternoon. Remember that I am that God, but stop requiring me to act in that same exact way again. Can I get a little personal? Because I think he's saying it to us here today, to Vineyard Church of Hopkinton. I think he's saying, remember, I'm the God who sent that small group of people to Hopkinton to start a church. Remember that I'm the God who did miracles when you didn't know where they were going to come from, who provided for you when you didn't expect to be provided for, who opened doors when you thought that they were all closed. I am the God who's brought people from all over the Metro West area and beyond into this building so that they could come to know me. Remember that I'm that God. Remember that I'm the God who for each and every one of us has healed us, has healed people that we love. I'm the God who has called us, who has restored our families. I'm the God who has worked in our lives, who's provided jobs, food, and money when we didn't know where it was going to come from, when we had literally no idea how we were going to pay the rent. I'm the God that has worked in every single one of your lives in that way. I am that God, but stop requiring me to work in that exact same way. Not because it's bad, because it's really good but because I want to do something new. I'm that God, and you know that I'm that God. And the reason that I want you to know that I'm that God is so that you will be ready for me to do something new in your lives. So you'll have faith to see what it is that I'm wanting to do. While the very same God that we are all witnesses to the God who has acted mightily in our lives to be that God so that we can recognize what he's wanting to do today. God's calling out and he's saying, stop dwelling on the past. Forget about it. See that I'm doing something new. I'm making a way in the wilderness. I'm making streams in the wasteland. I'm providing water. I'm pouring myself out so that you can drink You, my chosen, my people who I have called for myself. That's the God that I am. You know, the past is really not bad. The past is really good. It's a good thing to remember the past, to look back on it. 
but we can't remain there. You know, one of the dangers of maturing, of kind of doing something for a number of years, is calcifying. You start to know what it is that you like, and you start to think that you know how it is that you can get what you like. And so that's all you do. You just keep doing the same formula that got your results back in the day. And that's all you're relying on is that same tried and true thing when that's no longer the best way to be able to do it. You can get stuck in it. And we cannot remain in the past for that reason. Remembering it is good. Giving thanks to God for it is something that he asks us to do. But remaining there is wrong. And this is the simple reason that you cannot remain in the past, because God's no longer there. God's not 5,000, 2,000, or 20 years behind us. God is in our presence. He is here with us today, and he wants to do something new in our lives today, not 20 years ago. Today, he wants to move. God doesn't require us to replicate what we've done in the past. He asks us to remember what we've done and what he's done so that we can be ready for him to do something new. We're not just machines that can build, that can replicate the same thing over and over again. We're people that are aware of his movement so we can be open to it again. So what is God wanting to do? Well, if you look at Isaiah 44 with me, I think he starts to give us a clue. Verses two through four, here's what it says. This is what the Lord says, he who made you, who formed you in the womb and who will help you. Do not be afraid, Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen, for I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They will spring up like grass in a, med- in a meadow, like poplar trees by flowing streams. If you're like me, that one word in the middle of it kind of caught your attention, Jeshurun, because that's a unique word. It's kind of a pet name that God gives Israel here. The first part of it, Jeshur, implies it's kind of defined as upright. And the last two letters are a kind of Hebrew add-on that imply affection. And I think God's saying something pretty specific in using that word. He's saying that even though the Israelites have not been upright, that he still has affection for them. They haven't matched his ideal. They haven't done exactly what it was that he was looking for them to do, but they're not out of it yet. Just because they failed, just because they did the wrong thing, they didn't pay attention to God and what God was doing, it's not over. Their failures haven't taken them out of the game. John Oswald's a theologian, he said this. He said, not only has God found a way to forgive their sin, He has also found a way to transform a proud, self-centered people who seem incapable of giving themselves away into those who will gladly find their identity in their surrender to the Father. Catch that again. He's found a way to transform a proud, self-centered people who are incapable of giving themselves away into those who will gladly find their identity in their Father. We're just as self-centered and proud as the next guy, if we're being honest about it. 
You know, there's not that much of a difference between us and the Israelites, you know, three, four thousand years ago. We're pretty similar. And yet in that, God finds a way to transform us into people who will gladly find our identity and our surrender to him. And what God is going to do is really, really good. Surrendering to him in this is good. He says it in verse three and four, I'll pour water on their thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I'll pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They'll spring up like grass in a meadow, like poplar trees by flowing streams. How about this picture for you? God doesn't just want to water your plants. He wants to flood your valley. That's what he's telling us here. Have you ever seen what a desert looks like, a really dry area when a flood comes through? Everything gets completely changed and rearranged. There's nothing that looks the same after it. Every single thing gets moved and reordered. And God's telling us here that that's what he's up to, that he moves in these unique ways in different types of people in different times and places. But he always does it for this simple reason, because he wants us to know him because he wants us to be connected to him. He's, what he's doing is always good. It's always focused on us getting to know him, getting to know who Jesus is and what he's given to us. And it's always focused on him pouring out the Holy Spirit in really powerful ways that changes everything. That's the commonality in it, is that God's move is always powerful and it's always good every single time. I don't know if you've experienced this type of kind of powerful like onslaught uh, like God's describing here of, of the Holy Spirit, but I came across a few uh, descriptions from preachers in days gone by of this. Here's what a few said. Jonathan Edwards, who I mentioned earlier, he said that he once had an experience of the loveliness and the beauty of Jesus and that he was swallowed up in God. D.L. Moody is a, was a great preacher and revivalist from that same time, a little bit later. But he says when he was filled with the Spirit that he had to ask God to stay his hand. Charles Finney, who was another pastor from that time, when he was filled with the Spirit, once cried out, Lord, I can't bear it anymore. You got to stop. That's as much as I could take. How about this one? Howell Harris, he was an evangelist from Wales, England, and he wrote, I felt suddenly my heart melting like wax with love to God and felt not only his love, but a longing to be dissolved and to be with Christ. I could not help calling God my father. I knew that I was his child and that he loved me and that he heard me. And my soul was so filled that I cried, it's enough, I'm satisfied. My, I long to be dissolved and to be with Christ. There was no question that I knew that God was my father. That's what happens when God does his new thing. It looks a lot of different ways, but that's the end result every single time. Something happens, and it's so dramatically different than what you expected. <laughs> you, you say things like this because you're just in awe of who God is and what he's doing. The result is always that we're filled in ways that we couldn't imagine. You know, a couple of years ago, Sarah and I went to see her sister and her sister's family in Chicago. 
and Katie, her sister, didn't tell her boys, who were like two and four, that uh, we were coming. She wanted to surprise them. And so when we arrived, when we pulled up outside, the, uh, Katie told her boys to run to the window to look. And when they saw that Tia, Sarah, and Uncle Stephen were getting out, those boys started yelling and shooting loops around the apartment, so excited at this surprise that their mom had given to them. They just couldn't control it, and they couldn't control it for quite a while after that either. <laughs> Let me tell you, it took a while. <laughs> Lots of jumping on. You know, and I think there's something in that response that really fits what we see here in Isaiah, what God's telling us here. When God moves in these new, completely unexpected, there you go, unexpected, yet amazingly good ways, our joy takes over and there's very little we can do other than just immerse ourselves in that joy. Just let it pour out because it's starting to change us. It's starting to do something new. Our joy keeps bursting out. And that in and of itself is witnessing to others the reality of who God is and what he's up to. You know, Katie didn't surprise her kids so that that two-year-old would sit there with his arms behind his back and say, well done, mother. (laughs) That was not what she was going for. She surprised her kids so they would do exactly what they did so that she would be able to be a part of their joy of seeing their happiness at this good gift that she was giving to them. And God loves our joy as well. He doesn't want a well-done father. He wants us to be immersed in him, to really fall into him completely, to have so much joy and excitement at the gift that he's giving to us that we just can't contain it. I'm not saying you got to run laps, but there's be some joy pouring out of you to God for what it is that he's doing, because it's always, always good. And he loves being a part of our joy and our excitement at his movement in our life. If the worship team wants to come back up. You know, I was praying this week about this and just had a strong feeling that uh, God wanted to do something in us this morning. You know, as we remember the ways that God has moved in the past, in the Bible, in history, uh, in our own lives, as we hear stories of people just being kind of all-encompassed by the Holy Spirit, I think there's something in that that God's wanting to do again today. And so I think this is the question for us this morning. For each and every one of us, God's saying, will you let me do something new? That's what he's putting out there. And so what I want to do is just, if you can drop the lights hitting just a worship level. And I just want to pray and invite God, invite the Holy Spirit to come. So whether you're standing, sitting, however you do that, that's up to you. But I just welcome you to put out your hands. It's just something we do to say, okay, God, I'm willing. I don't know about all this. I don't know what all you're up to, um, but I'm willing to give it a shot. I'm willing to let you do something this morning. The worship team's going to lead us in a couple of songs. But as, as we begin, I just want to pray and invite the Holy Spirit to come. And just in your heart, ask God, what are you wanting to do new? What's springing up? How are you changing me? Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we just say come. Jesus, we just invite you to come right now to reveal yourself to us. 
we choose to not look to the past in the ways that you've moved then, but to just kind of stand here in the present in kind of the, the scariest place of all where we don't know what you're going to do and to ask you, what are you up to, God? Open our eyes this morning. Open our eyes right now to what you're doing, Lord Jesus. Mm-hmm.